I do invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament. We've been in the Old Testament for a couple months in the book of Ecclesiastes. Today we're starting a brand new series for the next little over a month in Matthew's Gospel. A five-part series uh, entitled Following Jesus, and we're going to look at what it means to be a true disciple. That's what Matthew really is about in these messages that he delivers. A number of years ago, um, when we bought our first house in Michigan, our realtor, who was a really nice guy and a really unchristian guy, <laughs> but uh, got into a lot of good conversations with him, and uh, God gave us favor with him. And at one point, I had the privilege to share the gospel with him a little bit. We were talking in the car, he and Becky and I, and he asked some questions, and I was clarifying some things about what it meant to follow Jesus, and I'll never forget his reply. Very candidly, and I think humbly, he just said, Jay, I can't do that, when I was laying out some of the cost of following Christ. And then he, he, he said this, he said, I would have to completely rearrange my life and how I spend my weekends. And I have to give him credit that at least he understood there is a cost to following Jesus, and you can't just follow him any which way you want. That brings us to Matthew's gospel. It's often been called the discipleship gospel or the teaching gospel, and there's a reason for that. Scholars tell us that when you look at the four gospels, our four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew contains more of the teaching of Jesus than any other gospel. So, hence, the discipleship gospel. And the reason is because Matthew took and built his gospel around five sermons of Jesus. And these are pretty distinct in the gospel. In fact, you can tell when you're done with one of the sermons because Matthew inserts a phrase that's after each of the five, it says something along this line, after Jesus finished speaking or after Jesus finished these words. You can tell where that particular sermon ends. Some scholars even speculate, we don't know for sure, that Matthew, because he was writing with a Jewish audience in mind, that he may have included five sermons of Jesus to reflect perhaps the five books of the Torah. But we don't know that for certain. But we do know that he did, he did build his gospel around five sermons of Jesus. And so this is an appropriate title, the teaching uh, gospel or the discipleship gospel. And it means that the essence of these five sermons is what it means to be a true versus a false disciple of Jesus. Matthew is very clear that there is a danger in being a false disciple of Jesus that looks like a real disciple. And this is a theme that he keeps, he keeps coming back to over and over again. We're going to begin this weekend with the first and the longest of these sermons. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. That's not the biblical name for it. It's not even really named. These don't have sermon titles like we would have today. But here's the big question that's being addressed in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a massive question for any of us here today. And that is... If any one of us wants to make sure we're right with God and gain eternal life, the question being addressed in the Sermon on the Mount is this, who is righteous in God's eyes? I hope even as I said that, 
there burned within you a bit of holy intensity that that may that be me oh god may i be counted as righteous in your sight and this is the question jesus addresses head on in this his longest sermon the first of the five in matthew and the first thing he does and the longest part i'm going to spend this morning is defining true righteousness because this is critical for understanding discipleship in general, but especially for understanding this message. Now, let me set the stage first, just a bit geographically, where he preached this thing. If you look at verses 23, back up to chapter 4, verse 23, here's the context. Chapter 4, verse 23, tells, it puts Jesus up in Galilee. This is in northern Israel, right up by the border would be with Lebanon in modern-day Syria. Jesus went through the Galilee teaching in their synagogues, Jesus came as a preacher, we're told that, proclaiming, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. And the news then spread about him all over Syria. That's not surprising, because that's right up in that neck of the woods. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demonized, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now notice, here's... The context, large crowds from the Galilee and Decapolis. Decapolis was a Gentile region just southeast of uh, the Sea of Galilee. Large crowds from the Galilee, from the Decapolis, was a city, region of 10 cities, hence Decapolis. Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan were following. And that brings us then into the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me say a couple words about Sea of Galilee region. Sea of Galilee is not a sea, it's not salty, <laughs> it's a lake. It's about 13 by 7 to 7.5 miles at its widest section in the north. It is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It is about 600 feet below sea level. And more miracles took place around that lake, recorded in the Bible, than anywhere else on earth. More miracles are recorded around that lake than anywhere else. Two-thirds of Jesus' ministry took place in the Galilee, which just means the district. Unfortunately, today, the Galilee is predominantly Muslim, but in Jesus' day, it's where the majority, it was a rural district, it's where the majority of his ministry took place. Let me just show you four photos to help give you a picture. There are no mountains, <laughs> per se, around the Sea of Galilee. It is a hilly region, and there are bluffs, and so that is the Church of the Beatitudes that sits today, probably accurately, where the tradition tells us Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. That is the Sea of Galilee, right there in the distance. And so that church, in, in, in Israel, you build churches traditionally on a site where something significant took place, a significant event, or a miracle. That's typically where they build churches historically. And so the Church of the Beatitudes built where Jesus traditionally delivered the Sermon on the Mount. There's no real reason to not think that this was probably the location. Next slide, we'll show you this church a little bit up close. A beautiful church. It's a Roman Catholic church, and it's a beautiful interior, exterior. The next slide will show you the view. That's the back of my bride's head looking out. So that's how close you are to the Sea of Galilee. That's, that would be your view right there. Okay, that's your view as you would be sitting roughly where Jesus was on this kind of hilly slope. You can see there's lots of room to spread out and to hear somebody speak. Natural kind of amphitheater down onto the water. Last picture I just put in for fun. Shows you all the no-nos 
on the Mount of Beatitudes, okay? All the things you, no dogs, no shorts. Shorts are pretty much out of place anywhere in the Middle East. Uh, supposed to be quiet, no drinking, no guns, and no smoking. Just to remind you of all the no-nos on the Mount of Beatitudes. But that, is, that gives you a little bit of a, it always helps me to have kind of a visually a, a picture of where this might have taken place. The only mountains really in Israel that we think like the mountains, Mount Hermon, way up in the north, by the border of Lebanon, which is actually a ski resort. Actually, it's a beautiful mountain, but uh, no mountains around the Sea of Galilee. It was on this hilly bluff. Verse 1, chapter 5, tells us Jesus sat down, which is a traditional position of rabbis when they taught. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. The disciples came to him and he began to teach. Now, I'm going to stop right here because before we dive into this, we need to answer a very, very important question. I mean, this is like the key interpretive question for the whole Sermon on the Mount. And it is this. Young people, you ready? Who is the target audience of the Sermon on the Mount? You might say, well, isn't that kind of obvious? Well, there is a huge range of opinion, and it goes all over the place. I'm only going to boil it down to the two most dominant views. And the reason I'm doing this is because which view you take determines how you interpret the Sermon on the Mount and takes you in opposite directions. That's why it's, it's, it's really something you need to address here. So who is the target audience? And knowing who the target audience is helps us determine what the whole point of this sermon is. So here's the two major camps about who this whole sermon was for. Camp number one, and I'm putting a number of camps in this, but camp number one basically is this. That the Sermon on the Mount, what you really have is a social manifesto, an, an ethical manifesto, a moral treatise, so to speak, for all mankind, all cultures, all religions, all people every, every, everywhere, to show them, to show us how to enter the kingdom of God. That's the bottom line. View number, camp number one views the Sermon on the Mount as the entrance requirements, so to speak, for entering the kingdom of God. In, in essence, how to be saved, how to please God, how to, you know, become a disciple of Jesus. Uh, advocates of this view, supporters of this view would be as diverse as Gandhi held this view. Uh, Tolstoy, Thomas Jefferson, many mainline churches, denomination I even grew up in, many Roman Catholics would view it this way. It's an ethical manifesto, a social manifesto. That's camp number one. Entrance requirements. How you get saved, how you, how you try to follow Jesus. Camp number two, very different view. I'm in camp number two. Camp number two is this is not so much a social manifesto to give us entrance requirements. This is a discipleship manifesto for those who are already committed followers of Jesus. Who are already in the kingdom of God and who have been saved. And you can see that takes you in a very different direction for interpreting Supporters of this view would be roughly most Bible-believing evangelical Protestants, for the most part, would be in camp number two. Let's see what Matthew tells us, verse 1, chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds who were always around him, he went up on this mountainside, sat down, which means he's in a posture of authoritative teaching for a rabbi, and his disciples came to them and he began to teach them. So, target audience is for those, let's be clear, who are already committed followers of Jesus, probably more than just his 12 disciples here. 
in Luke's version of this, in Luke chapter 6, it says, a large crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. So this is probably more than just the 12. This is a large group of people who had started to follow him. But the Sermon on the Mount, let us be clear, ladies and gentlemen, just based on the text, is aimed at those who are already true followers of Jesus. It's not a social manifesto to show us how to try to please God. It is for those who are already committed followers. What, and you say, well, what does that mean, a true follower of Jesus? That's someone who has repented of their sin. They've grieved over their sin and, and, and are walking away from it. That's the fruit of repentance. And have placed their faith in Christ as Savior. That's who this is aimed at. Now, I need to say something, and that is this. Jesus is aware that his audience has people in it that are not committed. That's very evident. He's also, he is very aware he knows that the uncommitted are listening, counterfeit believers are, are listening. And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you, you, are, you get, you receive some of the severest warnings Jesus ever delivers in any of his sermons. And that's why they're there. In fact, Matthew, when you read Matthew's gospel and study it, there's always three groups mentioned around Jesus. And these three groups are always there. They are the disciples, not just the 12, but those that are committed followers. Then religious leaders, they're mentioned regularly. And then the crowd, the crowd, the multitudes. Those are the three groups constantly mentioned as Jesus is doing his ministry, two-thirds of which is, takes place in Galilee. There's always the crowd, there's always religious leaders, and then there's always disciples. But let's be clear, the bulk of the Sermon on the Mount is primarily aimed at the committed follower. But Jesus is aware fence-setters are listening, uncommitted are listening, and outright counterfeit and charlatan Christians are listening. And so he will appeal to them on occasion and even issue warnings. So the bottom line is this. The point of all that is this. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is not try to follow these social principles, these moral principles, so you can earn your salvation by good works, which unfortunately is the view of a lot of people who sit in a lot of churches around the country and around the world, that this is, this is how you please God. You, you try to follow these things and you do your best and you try to be a good person. That's called religion. Religion is spelled D-O. <laughs> do. Do more. Just keep doing more and maybe you'll uh, uh, please God someday. That's not the point of the Sermon on the Mount. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is once a person has entered the kingdom of God, tracking with me, young folks? Once a person has become a born-again Christian and is saved, once they've crossed the line of saving faith, this is what a life of discipleship looks like. That's the gospel. Religion is spelled D-O. Gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. Done. That's the difference. And Jesus is reminding us that true righteousness, that's his point here, comes from the inside out. That's what he's going to be getting at. So, what is true righteousness in the eyes of Jesus? It is the person who mourns over their sin. It's the person who is pure in heart and who hungers to be holy. And that brings us to chapter 5, verse 20. And if you've zoned out, zone in, because this is the key verse for interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 20. Let me say it one more time. Chapter 5, verse 20, is the key interpretive verse for understanding the Sermon on the Mount. 
scholars are virtually united in that opinion. And here's the verse. And it will help answer our question, who's truly righteous? And I got to believe Jesus delivered this verse for both shock value and truth value, both. I tell you the truth that unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's just talk about this on a surface level. If you're the average dude sitting there, aware of your own sinfulness, and Jesus comes along and says, look it, unless your righteousness quotient exceeds the Pharisees, Pharisees, these are the most esteemed religious leaders in the culture. Everybody esteems the Pharisees. And Jesus points to them and says, unless your righteousness level exceeds theirs, you're doomed. Now that's, that's, I think we'd all admit, that's got a little bit of shock value in it, right? That'd put me in the tank. Be like, whoa. So what, what, what's his point? I mean, why would he say that? Here's why he would say that. And this gets to the heart of the whole first section this morning. What is true, defining true righteousness? The reason Jesus would say it is this. The Pharisees, and I'm lumping them all in one group. I know that's not totally fair. But the Pharisees, by and large, were rule lovers. It's as good a phrase as I can come up with. They were rule lovers. They loved external checklists. Earning your way to heaven by good works. Check the box religion. It's the, it's the default of my heart. It's the default of your heart. It's the default of humanity. Look, just do these things and you can check them off. Try to follow the Ten Commandments, sort of, if you can, maybe even a couple days a week. Recite the Lord's Prayer on occasion. Oh, make sure you go to church at least a few times here and there. And you'll be a good person. And you'll be okay. You'll be okay. You'll be a lot better than most people in your neighborhood or on your street. You'll be okay. God grades on a curve, doesn't he? No. And you, you should be fine. That's check-the-box religion. The problem, here's the problem. I can do all that. I can try to keep the commandments, and I can recite the Lord's Prayer, and I can recite the Nicene Creed, and I can go to church, and I can sit there and open my Bible and take sermon notes, and I can still go to hell. Why? Because I can do all those things without any interior change inside. I can do all that stuff and still have a heart filled with unforgiveness, bitterness, hypocrisy, and hatred, and outright rebellion. Why? Because they're external. They're external. Now, let's, be, let's, give, let's give the Pharisees their due credit, okay? The Pharisees began as a very legit renewal movement in between the Old and New Testament. That's why you don't read about them in the Old Testament, because they weren't there. <laughs> you read about them in the New Testament because they were there. Where are they, where are they coming from? They came during the Maccabean period when the whole culture was moving into the dumpster spiritually. And the Pharisees arose as very legitimate, the separated ones, the holy ones. How do you argue with that? And they said, look it, we're not following God's law anymore. This is, we need to come back to the law of God. God calls us to be holy. We need to be holy. You guys aren't being holy. Let's, let's, let's lift up our game here. That's a, that's a good thing. And they started as a very legitimate Renewal movement. Problem is, like a lot of these things, over time they morphed, evolved, devolved, however you want to say it, into a group of proud, arrogant, preoccupied police officers, <laughs> people's spirituality. That's what they evolved into. 
That's what they descended into. Policing everyone else's righteousness. And in essence, what they became was a group of grumpy, legalistic referees who were always ready with their penalty flags to throw a penalty flag on just about anybody for just about anything. That's the problem. That's what, and that's what Jesus is dealing with here. So in 520, he's saying, look it. What he's really saying in 520, the Pharisees' external version of check-the-box righteousness, it can't make you right with God. The Bible says even our, our best external actions are contaminated by pride and selfishness. John Newton's famous for saying that. Even my prayers are contaminated by sin. Which is why Jesus is looking. If you really want to be forgiven, if you really want to find true righteousness, if you really want to gain eternal life, verse 20, go back to verse 20, you've got to have a different kind of righteousness than the Pharisees. It has to surpass theirs. Let me put another word in there. It has to go deeper than theirs. Theirs doesn't go deep enough. Theirs is all about the external. It's got to go deeper than that. A lot of you know the story of Martin Luther. Let me just reference it because this is exactly the trap Luther fell into. Luther was a German monk 500 years ago who had fallen into check-the-box religion by his own admission. And he, his, it was driving him insane, literally, and his guilt from his sin was driving him insane until he started teaching at the University of Wittenberg from the book of Romans and started preaching from it and realized You know, Romans 1.17, where it says the righteousness of God is revealed, and he always read that and shuddered because he thought God reveals this standard that I could never hope to gain, and I'm, I'm, I'm doomed. And he finally realized, biblically, what it's saying. It's not saying God has revealed this standard and you never can reach it. Romans 1.17 means that the righteousness from God is revealed in Christ that he gives to those who are broken and repentant. And it changed everything for Luther, it changed everything for Germany, it changed everything for the Reformation, it changed everything for the world. Luther had gotten stuck in check-the-box religion, and he finally came to realize God, in the gospel, God is actually offering me the righteousness of Christ and promises to transform me from the inside out by the power of His Holy Spirit. That's what's going on here. In other words, let me do it in other words. Followers of Jesus don't just do good works to be saved. They do good works because they are saved. That is what true righteousness is all about. That's the gospel. Being a new creation in Christ because I'm risen with Christ. I'm in union with Christ. I'm alive in Christ, and it is His Holy Spirit that's changing me, transforming me from the inside out. That's the gospel. That's what 520 is all about. That's what true righteousness is all about. Now, secondly, the bulk of the sermon then is given to examples of this. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time. We'll spend a little time here. From 521 now, now that true righteousness is defined as an interior thing. And by the way, that's what all the Beatitudes, that's why, that's why he starts that way. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, which is a very strong word in Greek for mourning over your sin. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are all the indications of someone who's alive spiritually. That's the whole point of the interior focus here, the righteousness. Now Jesus from 521 through chapter 7 verse 12, is started, he's going to give us a bunch of examples of inside out righteousness. And his main point is this, 
A true disciple of Jesus has both external and internal righteousness. It's not that the external doesn't matter. It does. If external obedience is not in our lives, we don't know Christ. But if that's the only thing there, and if it's all exterior, we don't know Christ. So he's very clear it's got to be both external and internal. And so that's what he starts to do is give us a, a series of examples. And, and again, it goes back to the whole problem with check the box religion. It's all about the external. That's only half the pie. It misses the fact that I can keep rules all day long and still have a very corrupt, depraved, wicked heart. And so he now addresses his followers head on and he summons his followers here to a deeper level of inside-out righteousness, and he's going to give us a number of examples. I'm just going to focus on four. But that's what he's doing now. Now that he's defined true righteousness, we now get boom, 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 a bunch of examples of what he's talking about, like a good preacher would do. So, for example, in verses 5, 21 and 22, he said, look it, my disciples need to avoid murder. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, not a good idea to be walking around murdering people. Now, he's not saying murderers can't be saved or they can't be forgiven. We all know of murderers who have been saved and have been forgiven, King David being one of them. That's not, that's not his point. He's saying this, my disciples must avoid murder, but the real issue, it's hatred in the heart, unforgiveness. If you have unforgiveness lodging in your heart, lingering in your heart, that's where the sin starts way before you pull out a gun or however you're going to do the murder, way before the actual murder takes place, Jesus said, he said, it's hatred in your heart, it's bitterness. Heard it long ago, verse 21, you should not murder. He's just quoting the Ten Commandments. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's all true. We're too quick, Protestants are sometimes too quick to say, well, you know, murder is not the big issue, it's hatred. Well, murder is a big issue. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother or sister, his bitterness, unforgiveness towards them, will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, and then he uses a derisive term in Aramaic, it's a nasty term. But if, if you call somebody this, which means you, know, you have unk, gunk in your heart. Gunk is, a, is an old Hebrew word for nasty stuff. Not really, but I'm just... Okay, so if you've got, you got gunk in your heart and you, you call somebody this, and you're going to be answerable to the court. And if you say you fool, you're going to be in danger of the fire of hell. So that's example number one. True righteousness, is inter- it starts interior, and it then goes to the exterior. It has to be both. And example number one is murder. We're all familiar with murder. Jesus says murder is a sin. It's a horrible sin. It's an egregious sin. It's one of the worst. But it starts in a heart that is not clean. It starts in a heart that still has bitterness and unforgiveness and hatred in it. That's what he says. Example number two is adultery. Again, he just quotes from the Ten Commandments. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. My followers, he says, are, are, are sexually pure. It's not that you can't be forgiven for sexual sin. We know people that have. That's not his point. But he's saying, my followers should be known for sexual purity. The only sexual activity the Bible endorses is that between a husband and a wife in a covenant marriage, in a, in a, in a marriage. Marriage. That's the only sexual activity that is 
allowed in Scripture. All other sexual activity is a sin. And Jesus is very clear about that. But he says the issue really doesn't start with the adultery. It starts with lust. Again, he moves from exterior to the interior. Verses 5, 27, and 28. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust commits adultery in his heart. Third example is giving. Go down to chapter 6. He's just giving, again, example after example after example to prove his point. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, 1 through 3, 4. He is saying, my, my, my followers are to be generous. They're to be sacrificial in their giving. The Bible teaches tithing, not tipping God. Tithing. But then he says, but it, it better not be for the show. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Notice what he says. To be seen. That gets to motive. If you do, there will be no reward from my Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. That's a Greek word for actor. Actors are trying to appear one way when they're something else. Don't do it like the actors do it in the synagogues. And when you give to the needy, don't even let your left hand know what your right is doing. So that's example number three. Be generous. True followers of Jesus are known for financial, sacrificial giving. Most of, by the way, in the New Testament, it's directed at the church and then to the needy in the culture. But don't turn it into a show. In our last example, prayer and fasting. Look at verse 5. Same thing, notice. When you pray, he expects his disciples to pray and his followers to pray. But don't be like the actors. They love to do it out in this corner to be seen by others. Again, for the show. Or verse 16. When you fast, notice he doesn't say if you fast, if you know Christ. It's when you fast. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should be on occasion fasting. Do not look somber as the actors do. Don't do it for a show. So you, you get his point. Disciples are to avoid murder, but the real issue is hate and unforgiveness. Disciples are to avoid adultery, but the real issue is lust. Disciples are to be generous, but the, they're not to do it for a show. And, and disciples are to pray and fast, but they're not to do it to gain attention. So, let me come back to our question this morning. Who is righteous in God's eyes? And Jesus said it is the person, whether it's a child, a young person, or an adult, who has inside-out righteousness. That's, that's the key. Inside-out righteousness. It's the person, by the way, described in the Law and the Prophets. If I can go back to that. You need to realize this is not new. Jesus isn't rolling out new. This isn't like the New Testament. It wasn't even called the New Testament. This isn't some kind of new teaching. This was described in the Law and the Prophets. This is, this is Hebrew Judaism 101. Let me just give you just a couple verses to establish this. But this is everywhere in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 119, verse 12. Notice the emphasis on the interior. Blessed are those who keep his statutes, that's the exterior, who seek God with all their heart. See, this, this is nothing new. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
Or Joel 2.12. Now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Or how about this? This would be a great verse to memorize as a family. This is the call to be a Deuteronomy 10.12 person. Deuteronomy 10.12. What does the Lord your God ask of you? I love those verses that just lay it out bottom. What does God ask of you? Here it is. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. See, Jesus is not announcing brand new stuff. That is why, if you go back to chapter 5 for just a second and look at verse 17, he's making it very clear that he didn't come to set aside the law and the prophets. He's, he wants to make that crystal clear. Chapter 5, verse 17. Don't think I have come to abolish Torah or prophets. I, didn't do, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. So his point is, this is nothing new. This should not be anything new to anybody. That God expects righteousness to be first interior and then exterior, inside out. Lastly, we've said up front, Jesus' target audience is for the committed, those who are already followers. But he's aware there's always the crowd listening, religious leaders and others. He, he knows sitting out there are, so to speak, there's fence setters, there's those playing games, there's those just going through the motion. There's, and that's true, friends, in every audience in every church. We have some here today who are fence setters. We have some here today who are very committed. Many of you are committed to Christ. We have some here today who are, are uncommitted and perhaps even a few counterfeit believers here today. And so Jesus, aware of that, ends the Sermon on the Mount with what would have to be some of the sternest warnings he ever issues in any of his sermons. And there's four of them. Number one, there's a warning about the narrow versus the broad road. Verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14. Chapter 7. I had the privilege recently of preaching at my father's funeral, and these are the two verses I preached from, just to make sure it was very clear. Enter through the narrow gate... Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to eternal life, and only a few find it. I was watching a panel discussion a number of years ago with a bunch of clergymen. I don't know why you do that, something like that, but I was. It sounds like a joke, but there was like a Protestant and a Catholic and a Jew and a liberal and a conservative, and they were sitting there talking. And at one point, one of the uh, conservative pastors brought up Matthew 7, 14. Small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to eternal life. And the rabbi on the panel was immediately offended. A liberal pastor spoke up and said, it doesn't matter what you believe theologically as long as you're a good person. I don't know what Bible he was reading, but that's what he said. And then one of the other liberal ministers literally pointed at the verse and said, I don't believe that verse. Well, at least he was honest. He had more clergy that were just honest instead of getting up and pretending like they believe this stuff, and just said, I don't believe this stuff. But Jesus did, and he said. So that's warning number one about a broad, narrow road. There's three other warnings. There's a warning about true and false teachers. That comes in verses 15 to 20. Third warning is about counterfeit disciples, about being one thing, but really being saying one thing, but something else. That verses 21 to 23. And then there's a warning about foolish versus wise builders. So because Jesus knows there is 
those uncommitted to him and fence setters sitting out there and even counterfeits, he issues these warnings about a broad and narrow road, about true versus false teachers, about counterfeit disciples versus true disciples and wise and foolish builders. All right, let's land the plane. Here's the closing question that has to be asked from this. Do you have inside-out righteousness? Let me put it a different way. Are you a rule keeper by default or are you a God lover? And there's a huge difference. John's gospel, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to go through spiritual rebirth, which means I've turned from my sin. I don't just pretend, I actually grieve over it and I go the other direction, it's called repentance. And I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the evidence that someone's a true disciple is they mourn over their sin. They, they, they hunger to be holy and they're quick to display mercy. They're quick to display mercy. That's a, that's a key sign of, of a follower of Christ. Key, that's the gospel. And it's the only true gospel that brings salvation to us and our children. True disciples of Jesus, friends. They obey because they have to, but they obey because they want to. And they obey because they need to. Let me close with a very, very personal story. Some of you have heard this. We shared this in our parenting class recently. And I end with this because it's an exact illustration we're talking about here. Our, our oldest daughter, our oldest daughter, professed salvation at a young age, which is not uncommon. We catechized our kids. We went over this and over this with them. I even then questioned her and, and eventually allowed her to be baptized as a young teenager. And then we went through some very difficult years that revealed that she had a backstage life of deception and lying. And this had been going on for some time and, and it just grew worse and worse. And then finally in college, by God's grace, through a series of very strange, weird circumstances, God broke her. I mean, like broke her in a way that nobody else can do but the Holy Spirit, and she surrendered to Christ. To this day, even her siblings said, one of the biggest changes they've ever seen in any human being. By the way, don't ever give up praying for somebody in rebellion. Let me just say that. Don't ever give up praying for somebody in rebellion. Her sister, Stacy, my oldest daughter, who finally was converted, her sister came back, circled around to her <laughs> as a younger sister and said, uh, you need to get re-baptized, re-immersed. To which my older daughter told her basically go jump in the lake, no pun intended. And uh, my younger daughter persisted and said, look at baptism, immersion, which is what baptism means, is for those who've, who are saved. You weren't saved before when dad immersed you in front of all the people. So if you're really serious, you need to go get re-immersed, re-dunked. And finally, my older daughter said, you're right. And so the only person I have ever baptized twice in all my life is my oldest daughter. And the change was profound. It was huge. I can summarize it this way. The old Stacy obeyed because she had to. The new Stacy obeyed because she wanted to. That's the gospel, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Father, we thank you for what you have done 
through Christ. And that he gave this sermon that is so famous and so misunderstood so often. May we be gospel carriers of this truth. And I pray especially for those here this morning who don't know Christ, that this series would be a chance to open their eyes so they would come to saving faith and escape the wrath of God. We pray this in Jesus' name.